Thank you, Nate. One of my favorite hymns. That was neat. Ending in the major key there. That was, that was cool. The deep, deep love of Jesus that knows no bounds, that is limitless, that informs us. You preached the sermon with a musical right there today. Thank you, Nate. I'm really enjoying this series on ministry that we've been doing uh, this, this month of August and the, talking about the fifth purpose of this church, you know, the entire year of 2018, we're trying to rediscover what God's purpose is for us as a church, how we can more faithfully be the kind of church that he has called us to be as we look at what this whole thing that God has put together called the church. So the last couple of weeks, we're talking about how we're all called to do ministry. We're all called to be Ministers, because ministry is simply meeting the needs and healing the hurts of those whom we happen to encounter. Every follower of Jesus Christ is commanded to love God and love our neighbor, not so we can do good things and go to heaven and feel good about ourselves, but because it's the best way to live. When we minister to the needs of those around us, when we love God fully and we we end up fulfilling our purpose as God's people to be his healing hands in a hurting world. So today we're going to focus on the, the motive behind ministry. What's the impetus for ministry? What's the why behind the act of meeting needs? So let's stand today, if you're able, in honor of God's word as I read our text from 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I've never been to uh, the city of Philadelphia. I'm sure many of you have been to, anybody been to Philly, uh, Philadelphia, the Super Bowl champion, Philly Eagles, uh, I did stop at the uh, airport for a brief layover on our way back from Spain to Nashville, and we had just enough time to have a Philly cheesesteak. That was a, a wonderful re-entry into America after two weeks of, of Spanish food. But you know what the word Philadelphia means, right? It means philia, means love, and adelphos in, in the Greek language means brother. It's the city of brotherly Love. You may have seen the, the statue that's in Love Park. There's a sculpture. Do we have a picture of that? There's a sculpture of uh, a love statue that sits in the middle of what they call Love Park. It's actually JFK Park in downtown Philadelphia. But that phrase, brotherly love, is not a phrase that we really hear much lately or use much lately, is it? It's certainly not a gender-neutral term. There's the fountain. There's the, the statue. In this era of the the Me Too movement, uh, brotherly love doesn't sound as inclusive probably as it could be. And, you know, love is also one of those words that just kind of gets thrown around in our English language kind of flippantly every time I hear a 17-year-old pop singer 
sing about love, you know, I kind of roll my eyes like, yeah, you know all about love, don't you? At the ripe age of 17, you're a real wise expert on love. We talk about how we love cheeseburgers, or we love movies, or we love the beach. But the, the ancient Greek language, the, the, the language that the Bible was written in, actually employs four different words for the four different kinds of love. First, there's eros. Eros is the kind of love between a husband and a wife, the, the love between lovers. Philia. Philia is the love that is used most often. It's, it's the kind of love that implies a general love, like the love between family, the love between friends. Storge is a, a natural affection that you might feel for the cheeseburger on French bread at Rotier's restaurant. If you've ever had that before, you know what I'm talking about. It's the kind of love you have for a, a certain band or an uh, a, a, you know, instrumentalist that you love or the love you have for hiking or for golf or whatever it is that you do. But, but philia is that word that's used in the word Philadelphia, the kind of love that occurs between brothers. Brotherly love was one of the defining characteristics of the early Christian communities. They were known for their brotherly love. Uh, these communities are also known as churches, right? When Paul writes to the church, the young church in Thessal Thessalonica, which is Thessaloniki now, where Eric and Diana Titchener, Woodmont members, serve there as missionaries presently. Paul tells them this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The writer of Hebrews, he urges his church in chapter 13, Verse 1, to let brotherly love continue. So it was obvious that this was a, a trait that was to be cultivated in the early Christian churches. But what are they talking about exactly? What really is brotherly love all about? And what does it have to do with ministry? Does brotherly love mean the actual love between brothers? I don't have a brother. I have an older sister. And if brotherly love looks anything like what my sister and I had between us growing up, then I'm not sure it's such a good thing for us to have in our church here. My sister and I fought like crazy. As her little brother, of course, I knew exactly what buttons to push to make her just erupt. And I still know which buttons to push to make my sister uh, really angry. I don't do it as much, hopefully, anymore. But Brotherly love is the kind of love that still occurs between us because of the fact that we're family. I've had multiple people tell me how much they enjoy experiencing the family here at Woodmont Baptist Church and the strong sense of familial love that they cannot help but enter into by being present with us. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but at the end of the service, you know, most people, I've been in churches where a lot of people just rush out. You want to be the first one to get a table at the restaurant or be the first one in line at Chipotle or wherever you go after church. But here, we've, we've had a bit of a problem, it seems. We, we have to turn the lights off because 15, 20, 30 minutes even after the service, people are still hanging out, just talking here in the aisles. I love it. It makes my heart so happy to see people just enjoying koinonia fellowship together. 
I had one new family that joined the church that tell me we're here because of, of the Bible teaching, but also because of the strong sense of family that we experience here at Woodmont Baptist Church. That's getting towards the heart of what brotherly love is all about. When we realize that through what Jesus has done for us, through the, the, the miracle of redemption and new life that we've experienced through baptism, when we understand that we are adopted into the same family of faith, it unites us as siblings in the same family. And even though siblings may fight and tease and drive each other nuts sometimes, at the end of the day, we're still family. You know, there was a set of identical twin boys in my youth group in my last church, and they, they were loud, and they were just rowdy, and as they continued, they were loud as sixth graders and seventh graders, but as they continued to, to grow, they just became massive. They were like 6'3 and 200 pounds each, and they were great athletes, and they loved to compete, and I, I loved to compete, and we'd always end up playing basketball, and if they were ever on opposite teams, they would always just about come to blows. They would always end up guarding each other, of course, and they'd be pushing, and, and, and it would get, you know, a little intense, and I thought a few times they were going to get, you know, in a fist fight, and I, I wasn't going to get between them because I'm a father now and don't want to lose my life doing that. So these, these guys, what was so funny is if anyone else messed with one of them, if anyone else besides the other pushed one of them, the other twin was immediately all over that person. You know, it was almost as if, you know, we may fight and push each other, but you're not going to mess with my brother. He's my brother. That's family. No one's going to mess with my family, was kind of how they expressed it at the end of the day. If we as Woodmont Baptist Church are going to, to get ministry right, we're talking about getting these purposes right and doing them well. If we're going to do that, then we have to learn to see others as our family. Not as strangers, not as outsiders, but as family. This kind of familial love must be the driving force behind ministry. Because we'll eventually burn out. We've seen it before. If you're doing ministry for any other reason than being compelled by love, if you're trying to impress other people, if you're trying to do enough good things to impress God, if you're trying to earn your way into heaven, if you're trying to feel good about yourself by doing ministry, you will burn out. But the fuel of true love is never exhausted because we, as God's people, have been given the ultimate love. Look at verse 16 again. By this, we know love the word for no doesn't mean an intellectual understanding. It means an experience of love. By this, we have been demonstrated, been shown, been proven, and experienced love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The word that John uses in this verse is not philia, I only mentioned three loves, eros, storge, and philia, but there's a fourth love. And when we talk about ultimate love, the love of all loves, we talk about agape love. Someone on our sermon listening team mentioned last week, you should have talked about agape love. I, was, I said, I'm getting there. <laughs> 
God love is agape love. 1 John 4, 8 says God is agape. <clears throat> his essence, his nature is agape love. Agape love is gift love. It's love that just gives and gives and gives and doesn't seek anything in return. It's love that just constantly pours out day after day, grace upon grace, not needing or seeking or wanting or expecting anything in return. This kind of love is actually the foundation for all the other loves. C.S. Lewis said that the other loves must be subjected to agape love. It must be the, the supreme love from which they flow out of. Because eros and storge and philia will not work properly unless they are fueled by agape and subject to it. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, won't happen without knowing agape love first. And ministry won't happen effectively or consistently without the fuel of brotherly love. So you may say, okay, so, so where do we get that ultimate love? How do we learn it? How do we know it? Well, John says right here in verse 16, by this we know agape love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what love is all about. In John chapter 15, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples on the night that he's about to be betrayed, on the night that he knows is going to be the, the beginning of the end where he is going to be crucified uh, within a few hours, where he's going to experience the greatest pain ever uh, on earth that anyone could go through and the most agonizing death. He's about to show his disciples the ultimate expression of agape love. And he gives them a clue about what he's going to do here in a few hours. He says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone <clears throat> lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle Paul understands that the gospel is the greatest display of agape love. That's why in Romans chapter five, verse seven and eight, Paul writes, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his agape for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us when we least deserved it. He took our place on the cross. He took our sin, our guilt, our shame on his shoulders and nailed them to a cross, putting them away forever. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is why John writes so much about love, because it's at the core of the gospel. A few verses after our main text, in the next chapter, 1 John 4, verse 9, John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the fallen, broken world, that we might live through him. It was made manifest. The physical expression of God's love was sent to earth in the form of Jesus Christ who came to bring us life and life to the fullest. Abundant life, he says. And our ability to love is not based, therefore, on our own 
character, on our own power, our own ability to love. It's the result of God's love in us. The next verse, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love that word, propitiation. It means taking something bad and turning it to good. That's what Jesus did. Beloved, if God so loved us, so also we ought to love one another. The presence of God's agape love in us will always, always, always result in our love for others. If we don't love others, then God's love is not in us. Look at a few verses later, 1 John 4, 19. John says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Ministry, therefore, to others is not optional for anybody who calls himself a Christian. It is a commandment directly from the Lord. And furthermore, ministry is merely the evidence. It's the proof. It's the natural overflow, the necessary result of God's life-changing agape love in us that pours out into others, even to the point of laying down our very lives for our brothers and sisters. So in verse 16 here, we have the ultimate example of love, the love that Jesus showed us. And you may say, okay, I'm not Jesus. I could never lay down my life for someone else. Okay, well, John brings us down to a practical level. Look at the next verse, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You know, it may be easy to say, oh, because of God's amazing love and the gospel and God's love that he's shown me, I love everybody now. I love all people. But a lot of times saying, I love everybody, can really just be an excuse for not loving that guy or that girl or that person that God has put in your life sovereignly in his good redemptive purposes. It's easy to say we love all people, but it's hard to love that guy. You know, during last week's message on the Good Samaritan, we saw how Jesus blew up the idea of only loving certain people, that the idea of loving our neighbor extends to all people that we may encounter, even our enemies. And that's a hard thing to do. I got a text from a friend in the church here on Monday said, man, this whole love your neighbor thing is tough. I said, tell me about it. I just got in a fender bender that totally wasn't my fault on 21st, just a little bit north of here. And I was so angry when I got out of the car. I don't need this right now. I'm late to an appointment. It's going to be on the phone with insurance for weeks now. And we've got to do rental car and collision repair and all this junk. I don't need this stuff. And I was so angry. And then I preached the gospel to myself (laughs) before I got out of the car. I said, this is a ministry opportunity. Took a deep breath, said a little prayer, smiled, got out. It was, it was all fine. No one was hurt. That's the main thing. And in God's grace, it's just cars at the end of the day. And 
ended up as a sweet, kind lady who had, who had pulled out, and, and we ended up chatting for a long time, and uh, I invited her to church, and who knows what will come of it. I gave her my card. Who knows what will happen, but it's always a ministry opportunity when God puts someone like that in your life. This verse, verse 17, gives us two clear conditions for ministry. If these two conditions are met, then it's a ministry opportunity. The first one is if, if we have the world's goods, which by the way, I'm pretty sure is every single one of us in here today. If we have the world's goods. And then two, if we see a brother in need. And that, that word for see, again, doesn't just mean like you glance and catch someone out of the corner of your eye. It means to really see them. If we have and we see someone who has not, it's a ministry opportunity, plain and simple. But the problem, John says, is that in our sinful condition, in our fallen human nature, we tend to close our hearts to the needs around us. In the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, Jesus said that a priest and a Levite saw this half-dead guy on the side of the road, and they, they went by on the other side. They closed their hearts to the need that they encountered, that they came across. And then in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, he says, but a Samaritan, shocking, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Ministry must be fueled by compassion, open hearts, right? Remember the, the cotton patch version of the gospel that I, I read last week where it said that it was this white guy on the side of the road and an African-American man was moved to tears, is how Clarence Jordan put it. He was broken for this man who was beaten up on the side of the road. He had compassion on him. Ministry is a heart issue. But back in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, I think this is hilarious, the, the, the prevailing thought of the day was that your feelings, your emotions, your will was not centered in your heart, but in your gut. So the, the, the word that's actually used in, in Greek here is, is the bowels. It says if anyone has the world's good and sees a brother in need and closes up his bowels to him. I love the King James translation says, but whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? The point is the same. If God's love dwells within us, we will feel something for those in need. But sometimes the need around us can be so overwhelming. Maybe you feel too deeply. Maybe you can't function because you're paralyzed by the need around you, and you start to justify all the reasons why we don't minister to others. Oh, I'm too busy. I, I'm, I have more important things to do. I uh, don't have any money. I'm not in a season of life right now where I can support something else. And we close our hearts. We shut down those God-given feelings of compassion for those who are in need. We start to have a closed heart and we refuse to let go of the stuff that we have. Closed hearts lead to closed hands. Closed hands are the hands of a miser. You know what the word miser means? Someone who has closed heart and closed hands. And you know what the root word of miser, it's the word for miserable. 
It's a miserable way to live. That priest and that Levite who closed their hearts because they had more important things to do were miserable, misers. Living with open hearts and open hands is actually the best way to live. God's not commanding us to live this way because he wants us to be good and go to heaven. He's commanding us to live with open hearts and open hands because it's the abundant life. It's life he came to bring us. If we're going to live this way, the way of flourishing, the way of human thriving, then we have to understand how the status of our hearts affects the status of our hands. If we are compassionate people who are captivated by the agape love of God expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we hold all that we have with an open hand. The reality is that it's all his anyway, right? I've heard people on our finance committee, wise people, bemoan the misunderstanding that we often hear. Oh, bring your tithe to church so you can give God 10% of what you have. No, it's all God's anyway. You've just been given some of it to steward for a little bit. Bring God an offering as an act of worship, acknowledging that in his grace and in his love, he has provided for you all that you have. That changes how we view ministry, doesn't it? It changes how we tend to look at how we withhold something from someone else on the basis that it's ours. Who are we to, to withhold anything? When we live with open hearts, we hold all of our stuff, our possessions, our money, our time, our talent, our treasure. We hold it all with an open hand. We become ready and, and graciously, happily willing to part with it when it will help a need, help meet someone's need or heal their hurt. So John wraps up this passage with a reminder of our status as family now. Verse 18, little children, brothers and sisters, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There's a great little book. I love it. Morgan doesn't love it, but I, I think it's great. Uh, by a guy named Bob Goff. He's a wealthy attorney uh, in the Pacific Northwest. It's called Love Does. Love Does. It necessitates action. He talks about his Bible study group that he's in, but they don't call it a Bible study. They call it a Bible doing. It's not a class. It's a Bible doing that he's involved in. How do we live this out? They love in word and in, in deed, not just in word, but in deed and in truth. He donated all the proceeds from the sale of that book to a school in Uganda. Open heart, open hands, demonstrated in action, in deed, and in truth. Love does. That's what love looks like. Ministry is simply love in action. So will you let the transforming power of God's agape love to take root in your heart today, in your gut, in your very deepest being, and let it open your heart in a way that changes have the status of your hands today. Maybe you've been clinging a little too tightly to everything you have. Maybe you tend to be a miser and it's making you miserable. The invitation is to let the agape love of God change your heart and let that change your hands. Will you live more and more of the abundant life of open hearts, open hands, meeting the needs of your neighbor, of your brother, of your sister, whomever you might encounter this week, 
who's in need. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the ultimate example of agape love that you came to rescue us when we least deserved it, when we were in full open rebellion against you. You didn't hold it against us. You didn't count our sins as what they should have been counted, but you wiped away our sins by sending Jesus to take our punishment. God, we thank you for the gospel. God, we can never thank you enough. I pray that you would help us to enter into your gospel work of redemption by meeting needs and performing acts of ministry every day around us. God, help us to see the individual who comes into our path over the next few days, the the hard person to love as an opportunity to be your hands and your feet, and in doing so, not live a life of a miser, but to live an abundant life of giving ourselves away for your kingdom's sake and for your glory and for your name. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jesus is Lord of all. Whether people know it or not, he is the sovereign Lord of creation. We're going to stand and sing our hymn of invitation, Jesus is Lord of all. And I invite you, if you have never known the the love of Jesus Christ in that intimate, life-changing way in your deepest soul, in your heart, in your gut, wherever your emotions are seated, some of us it may be our gut, maybe you're hungry right now. (laughs) Maybe it's the Holy Spirit, though, moving in your heart. And you know that you need to accept him as, as your Lord and Savior and to, give, to accept the free gift of forgiveness that he offers today. I, I would invite you to come now and, and talk to me about what that looks like. If you just need someone to pray with, uh, I'm going to ask Trey if you'll come up here and Jan and Brad if you'll come stand up here as well. And uh, If you need healing, maybe you're just going through a tough physical time right now and you want to pray for healing, uh, these people would love to pray with you. The Bible commands us to pray for healing, right? The, the, the power of laying on hands that Jan Regan just talked about and having someone pray for you is a powerful thing. Maybe you just want to come kneel at the altar and pray too. That's fine as well. Maybe you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church and be a part of what the Lord's doing here in this family of faith, officially become a member of this church. Whatever it is that you need to do today, don't leave this place without meeting God where he meets you. Let's stand and sing, Jesus is Lord of all.